it does elevate, when you sing those old hymns, it, it elevates your perspective uh, because it, it garners your attention. You have to work to understand what you're singing, and that's not a bad thing, right? Uh, to, to see the depths of, uh, of our worship to God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 10. I confessed to Pastor Tomer before the service started that uh, this was a unique week. I finished my sermon on Tuesday or Wednesday, and as I was looking over my sermon plan, I was, my math wasn't adding up as we've been going through Zechariah, and I realized that I wrote a sermon for chapter 11, and we're on chapter 10. So I wrote two sermons this week. Next sermon's already set. I already know what I'm preaching on, um, but I, I was thankful because um, I think I would have approached chapter 10 differently if I hadn't already written a sermon for chapter 11, and so I trust that God can use my um, inadequacies or my shortcomings for his glory. You know, we uh, want to encourage you before I get into the sermon today to come on Wednesday if possible. Uh, at six o'clock, the youth and the adults are meeting together in our uh, gym, our fellowship area. The Lothers are going to be in, um, Jonathan and Mackenzie. Now, we, most of you probably know Mackenzie is Mackenzie Baker, and they're going to have their baby with them. And uh, the new baby, I don't think... M- I don't think we've met the baby yet personally, um, and so we're going to hear about what God's doing with them as they're a missionaries with Youth with a Mission, and uh, they've been spending some time in Texas, so please come out. They're serving us ice cream, so uh, that's the added incentive, you know, but uh, come, hear what God's doing in them, enjoy some fellowship, and once again, I, I can't be more thrilled uh, as a member of this church to have God's sending out missionaries from this church. There's so many churches that are lacking that kind of vision to send missionaries out. And that there are young people and and others, older people, who are even being obedient to that call. And uh, I pray that we'll continually not just have missionaries come from this church, but pastors and and teachers, lay leaders. Um, We always want to be a sending church. On Wednesdays, I've been teaching Genesis, and this past week we studied in Genesis 3 where the serpent tempts Eve. The first thing he tries to do is create doubt in her heart by saying, did God really say? You know, when you start doubting God and start questioning him, the next step is the devil says an outright lie. He didn't say that. He didn't mean that. That's not what he said. He doesn't have your good intentions in mind. And we talked about in the class, uh, the thing that stood out to me that, that was a unique perspective is the devil always tries to offer us everything that we already have in Jesus. Just think about that. Temptation offers you something that you think you don't have, but in Christ we have everything that we need. So what can the devil offer us that we don't already have? Fulfillment, we've got that in Christ. Joy, yes. Hope for the future, absolutely. Peace, yes. Abundance, oh, eternal abundance. Nothing in this world will you take with you. Everything we could ever want or need is found in God who willingly wants to bless us. And so we need to hold on to that perspective that God isn't up there trying to make you suffer. There's not a God in heaven who says, you've got to earn what I give you. The cross tells us that the debt's already been paid. We have to look at God as a father who willingly and and honestly wants to bless us. 
And so the crazy thing about the temptation in the garden is it could have easily been resolved if they would have paused and said, uh, God, we got a question down here. Uh, the serpent says this, and my viewpoint is this. Can you clarify how often would our life be differently if we stopped what we were doing and asked God for clarification? Why don't we go to God first? Why do we forget about him and try to solve our problems in our own strengths? It's a huge question. How many of you are guilty? You can show your hands. How many of you guilty of of trying to solve it and then going to God? Yeah, we're we're all guilty of that. We just forget to ask him. And and so today, I just, I I want to encourage you to, to add to your perspective that there is a God who can't wait to hear you call out to him. So, in Zechariah, God's people are rebuilding. And we know they have reason to fear in the moment. They're coming out of heartache and destruction and exile. And so God, just like with humanity, out, coming out of Genesis 3, God is encouraging the people of Israel at this time to believe again. Trust me. Know my heart. Know that I want to bless you. And as we look at chapter 10 today, I think God's going to speak to our hearts as well, because the message here is timeless. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, Ask the Lord for rain in the spring, for he makes the storm clouds, and he will send showers of rain so every field becomes a lush pasture. Household gods give worthless advice. Fortune tellers predict only lies. And interpreters of dreams pronounce falsehoods that give no comfort. So my people are wandering like lost sheep. They are attacked because they have no shepherd. The first word of this passage is ask. Ask. We forget that God invites us to ask. Now you know the people that say, please stop asking me questions. You know, figure it out for yourself. God doesn't say that, (laughs) ever. He always says, ask me. Back Matthew 7, 8 says, Whoever asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And so in this passage, he's even just talking about the weather. Does God care about the weather? Yes. He is, this is my Father's world. And so he says, even ask me about the weather. You want rain? Ask me for it. You want sunshine? Ask me for it. And, and we know, I mean, this has been a crazy year for thunderstorms, right? Like, you can drive. You can see the wall of rain. Dry here, and then rain here. And Pastor Sean shared a testimony about the Kairos team, where it was raining solely on the one spot where they had offered this sacrifice of burning their, their sins and their confessions to God. God can do it. And so this is the weather we're talking about. Don't you think he wants to hear your other requests and wants to answer them just as equally? In comparison, who do we trust in? Experts. I don't like that word expert. Do you know why? I don't think any of us live long enough to become experts at anything. We have the same lifespan, give or take a few you know, decades. Everybody's just pulling from other people's resources. We don't live long enough to become experts, but we rely on people who say they're experts. Now, we may not be dealing so much with household gods that they were in the time, or fortune tellers, 
but I think we do rely on experts, right? I think we spend too much time watching the news. I think we put too much weight on political polls. I think we have our experts that we listen to and go to first. Celebrities are not the source of truth. <laughs> People of wealth or value. And I joke about weathermen all the time. That's got to be the best job in the world because they can be wrong over 50% of the time, but if they have a personality, they got a job. I, I'm in the wrong business, right? But who do we go to help for answers? And so just think about your own life. Who are the household gods? Who are the fortune tellers and soothsayers? Who do you rely on first for your answers before God? God says any advice we seek apart from him and his words is worthless, it's lies, and it's falsehood. Now, let me add here that it's okay to go to Christian brothers and sisters for counsel. But we need to switch our priorities. I've shared with you before that when my mom passed, my struggle was she was my go-to. When I had, couldn't find the answers, I'd call mom, and, and mom would give me godly counsel, and, and it was great, and it was wonderful. And then when she was gone, I said, who am I going to go to now? I love my dad, but I, I don't connect with him like I did my mom. And God said, me. <laughs> it's better that your mom goes, so now I can have a direct relationship with you instead of through her. That's where he wants us to get to. Now, do you ever feel lost and confused? You don't have to raise your hands on that because I know the answer. We all feel lost and confused at different points. Do you know why? Because we're sheep. We're sheep. A creature created by God designed to be dependent on humanity. As we've been studying Genesis, there are the wild animals and there were domesticated animals. And there was always the design that there were certain animals that man was supposed to tend and care for. Now you have goats in the wild that climb, but you don't see a lot of sheep in the wild, right? They don't make it. They don't have a way to defend themselves. They do stupid things. And so we as humanity are like sheep in that we cannot lead ourselves. We've been designed to be dependent on God. Now, sheep don't like to hear that. But we are designed to be dependent on God. When we wander away from His Word and guidance, not only do we get lost and confused, but we leave ourselves open to attack. The Scripture tells us that our enemy prowls around like a, a, a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. We put ourselves in positions where we can be attacked when we move away from the voice of the Good Shepherd. We are dependent on him our whole life. Another thing that struck me about our study in Genesis 3, those who aren't in the class, you're getting extra nuggets of gold today, is that when God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned and eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were hiding. And God asked where they were. Now, did God know where they were? Yes. So why did he ask? Well, we related to the fact that the Garden of Eden... Uh, another word for garden is nursery, right? And where do you, what do you put in nurseries? Babies. They're, they're, they're young. They, they don't understand. And so they react just like a baby would. You know, if you've got a kid that's done something wrong, what do they do? You can't see me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm ashamed. And that's kind of what they did. They covered their bodies with fig leaves and they hid in the garden 
God called out to Adam, and Adam responded. And Adam says this, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. What stood out to me in this is that he was afraid of God. Up to this point, everything God had created was, was good. There was no reason to fear. But it was his willing um, disobedience to God that created this distance, this separation. A, a great definition of death is separation. Death separates us from God, from, from one another, from creation, and eventually, if we live long enough, our body, right? Separation. So there's this separation here. And so um, the thing about fear is, is it, it creates this, this distance, this doubt in God. And, and so we got to remember, guys, that God loves us. He loves every detail about you, even the stuff that you can't figure out about yourself, your personality and your likes and your dislikes and your quirks. He loves all those things. He knows every hair in your head. He knows your first day and your last he knew you as you were formed in your mother's womb. All these are true of each one of us. And yet, sin causes us to fear the one that loves us that intricately. And so our fear of God, or what following him might cost us, actually brings about the very destruction we fear. Isn't that interesting? I'm not sure I can trust you, God, so I'm going to keep my distance. Well, what you're afraid of is going to happen as long as you move away from the voice of God. We're, we're creating our own problems when we don't trust God. When we become beautifully dependent on Him and we allow Him in when we're open and honest, then all our fears are melted away in the presence of the risen Savior. When in reality He says, ask me and I'll bless you. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. My anger burns against your shepherds and I will punish these leaders. For the Lord of heaven's armies has arrived to look after Judah, his flock. He will make them strong and glorious like a proud war horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, the tent peg, the bow for battle, and all the rulers. They will be like mighty warriors in battle, trampling their enemies in the mud under their feet. Since the Lord is with them as they fight, they will overthrow even the enemy's horsemen. I will strengthen Judah and save Israel. I will restore them because of my compassion. It will be as though I had never rejected them, for I am the Lord their God who will hear their cries. The people of Israel will become like mighty warriors, and their hearts will be made happy as if by wine. Their children, too, will see it and be glad. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Next week, we're going to talk more deeply about caring shepherds and the failure of shepherds. Again, this is why I think my sermon was written out of order because I probably would have keyed in on this passage. And next week is where the emphasis needs to be on the failure of shepherds and leaders. Um, but we need to know today is that God is angry when our leaders lead us in the wrong direction, especially our, our religious leaders, because they are the ones who are almost the bearers of God's word. Now we live in a day and an age where we have the written word, where we're post the printing press, and so you all have the ability to read the Bible on your own. You probably have multiple copies in your house. Um, but you know, a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred, they were dependent on the priests 
to preach and to teach and all the rest. And, and if, if they didn't do it properly, if they were doing it for themselves, then the people all suffered. But we still have that same standard today, that, that God is angered when religious leaders and political leaders don't do what they're called to do. And so when you look at the book of First and Second Kings, if you ever get a chance to read those books, um, and, I, and I talk about this usually in election years, and we got an election coming up, and so I, I'll, just, I'll just tell you this. God measures a king's worth and value, and, and whether or not they're a good king or a bad king, not by their political policies. Not how they handle taxes or not taxes, or, or how they, they deal with immigration, or, or how, they have their, um, how they deal with other countries. It, it's, that's not what it says. A good king or a bad king is decided by whether or not they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was right in their own eyes. It's another way of saying they didn't listen to God. They didn't. They weren't beautifully dependent on Him. The best leaders are beautifully dependent on God. And so if God has called you to a position of leadership inside the church or outside the church, a key to becoming a great leader is to remember you're not the leader. God is. It's the difference between Saul and David. Saul's like, I'm in this position and i got to look the part. <laughs> David said, I am just a shepherd from Bethlehem. I need the good shepherd to guide me every day. And so all of us in some way, shape, or form are in leadership. We've got teachers in the room. You're in a form of leadership. How are you the best teacher possible? Because I'm not the teacher. I'm listening to the great teacher and he teaches me what to say. If you're a parent, how can I be a great parent? Well, none of us are great parents unless we're dependent on our heavenly father to teach us how to parent, right? So in order to be a great leader in every scope and scale, there has to be a dependence on God for guidance and direction, wisdom and understanding. And to remember that your flock is always his flock. Your classroom, your kids, your congregation. Every time God's led me away from a different church, this is the, the third church I've ministered to as a, as a pastor. Uh, Elizabeth City as a youth pastor. Westover as an associate pastor and now here. It's always been difficult leaving brothers and sisters in Christ. It's always difficult leaving those that you ministered to. And my struggle was, God, how am I going to do that? And he lovingly reminded me, it's never been your flock. It's always been my flock I've entrusted to you for a time. Leave them in my hands. I'm still the good shepherd. I'll take care of them. Now take care of the flock that I've given you for now, for today. And our lives would be so much freer if we had that same attitude with our children, with our employees, with those that we're called to teach. We care for them, we love them, but we always know that, that they are his flock first. Passage says the eternal king has come back. Jesus walked this earth and made a way for the Holy Spirit to reside within the core of our being and make us holy. The king is on his throne. Amen? He conquered sin and death. The, the cross is a testimony to that. And so we have the ability to call out to God because He has the availability to hear us every time we call. There's not a place you'll find yourself where God can't hear you. What freedom! What joy is this! 
Have you ever been in a place where you've called out for help and no one could hear you? That's a scary proposition. But God always hears. He's always made himself available to us. The passage says he wants to make us into mighty warriors. And then there's some prophecies mentioned here once again. It, it, it is, you know, when you read the Gospels, you can really think, how did, how did the, uh, the religious leaders and the people get it so wrong? How did they think when Jesus came back that he was going to create this, this army and they were going to defeat their foes? Well, passages like this, right? Where he talks about them being a mighty warriors and that Judah's going to be a bow and a sword and all of this. That, that's what he's talking about, but they didn't understand that our, our sword is God's word and, and, and our truth is, is, is the word. And, and they didn't understand that whole perspective. We have uh, a special thing where he, in this passage, mentions the cornerstone. Judah's going to be a cornerstone. And if you remember the Gospels, he says that I am the cornerstone, the, the thing that the, the truth is going to be built on, that the church is going to be built on, and I'm the stone that the builders rejected. And, and Jesus in his, in his earthly ministry often used those kind of building things as, um, as illustrations because he was a carpenter or, or a builder. And so you see the same thing in Zechariah and Haggai, that, that he uses those kind of illustrations because they're in the process of building. God speaks a language for what we're to understand in the moment. God doesn't want us to walk defeated lives, but victorious ones. And I've said this before, and it needs to be repeated. Maturity is not greater independence, but greater dependence. The most mature people I know are the ones who will willingly admit that they are completely and utterly dependent on God every day. That's maturity. Verse 5 says, They will be like mighty warriors in battle, trampling their enemies in the mud. Since the Lord is with them as they fight, they will overthrow even their enemies' horsemen. Later on, the passage says that he will make, he will strengthen, he will restore. Our being mighty warriors for God, us being able to stand against the, the attacks of the enemy, us being able to be warriors of truth, are always and completely dependent on the fact that God is with us. He's not sending us out and saying in the headquarters, he's always right by our side, fighting our battles with us. As we saw a couple weeks ago, God fights our battles. Yes, he'll make us mighty, but we're always tethered to the source. So let me use an, another building illustration. Pastor Dave here is a builder, built lots of things. There's, there's nothing better than an electric saw when you've got a project, right, David? I mean, sawing by hand, you can't make the same cuts, reduces your time, and everything else. So a power saw is a great thing, but if you don't have a plug and electricity, what good is that power saw to you? It's a paperweight, a big, heavy, expensive paperweight. That's who we are. Jesus is the source of our power, of our strength. And we have the ability to do and create many things. But if we're not plugged into the source, we're not reaching what we were designed to do. The end of verse 6 reminds us that God will hear 
our cries. He's many times just waiting for us to ask. And the change that he'll bring as we're beautifully dependent on him is an internal heart change that makes us truly happy. If you look at, uh, at the passage, um, he says in verse 7, the people of Israel will become like mighty warriors and their hearts will be made happy as if by wine their children too will see it and be glad and their hearts will rejoice. What does it mean that he's going to make us happy as if drunk on wine? What is he talking about? Well, why do people drink? Why do people drink wine to excess? It's so that they uh, release their inhibitions. Um, it brings joy in the moment. It brings freedom. Their, 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 their worries, their cares aren't so heavy on them. They feel good. And so he's saying when we have this beautiful dependence on God, it's like that. Now, the problem with getting drunk is the next day, right? Your problems return. Sometimes you have a hangover. It's not great. It's not wonderful. But the, the hangover from a beautiful dependence on God doesn't, isn't negative. It says that future generations will have joy from that kind of dependence. It's a different, and, and I love the illustration of wine here because, again, this is another prophecy. Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine. And, and as we've talked about before, the jars used for water were for purification or baptism. And so when he changes that water into a wine, it leads us to Acts chapter 2, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs and the, the, the disciples, the apostles, are, are, are speaking languages they've never learned, they're prophesying, and the people around them are saying, they must be drunk on new wine. So again, there's, there's a prophetic connection here. Let's keep reading. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. When I whistle to them, they will come running. For I have redeemed them from the few who are left. They will grow as numerous as they were before. Though I have scattered them like seeds among the nations, they will still remember me in distant lands. They and their children will survive and return again to Israel. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will resettle them in Gilead and Lebanon until there is no more room for them all. They will pass safely through the sea of distress. For the waves of the sea will be held back, and the waters of the Nile will dry up. The pride of Assyria will be crushed, and the rule of Egypt will end. By my power, I will make my people strong. And by my authority, they will go wherever they wish. I, the Lord, have spoken. Continuing the metaphor that we are sheep and that we have bad shepherds, God basically says, I'll be your shepherd. When I whistle, you'll come. Now, again, I, I'm going to use Pastor Dave as an illustration here because Pastor Dave's been a farmer. Now, if I went out to your, to your field, your cattle or your chickens or whatever else, and I started calling to them, would they come running to me, Pastor Dave? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if I had food in my pocket. But they know your voice over they know my voice. There's a beauty to that. My sheep know my voice. When I whistle, they come running. When you become beautifully dependent on God, you learn to recognize His voice and His call. Not only that, you trust it. And so you recognize His voice from His Word. That's the most obvious place. But you can also hear His voice when you're out in public. 
You hear his voice when you hear certain leaders and, and other shepherds preaching and teaching. And then you can also recognize when it's not his voice. That doesn't sound like my Jesus. That doesn't, that doesn't resonate. I, I can't trust that. Now, when I hear his voice clearly, I, I'll run headlong. <laughs> my youngest son, Jaden, knows his daddy's voice. Whether I'm calling to him or not, when he hears my voice, he screams. He immediately whines. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Now, he doesn't always say daddy. Sometimes he calls me mama or Emma. All his siblings are Emma. Um, but he desires to be close to me. And he will cry and scream until I pick him up. And when I do, he nuzzles his head under my chin. He pats my back. Why? Why? Because he knows he's safe with me. He knows that I will defend him and I will protect him and that I love him. And when he's in my arms, he's strong. By himself, he's in the one percentile for height and weight and everything else. He's just a little guy. But in his daddy's arms, his perspective is elevated. He can see everything. He can reach. I'll allow him to have those things that benefit him, and I'll keep him away from the things that will hurt him. And he is not afraid at any moment of the day to yell out, Da! 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 Beautiful dependence. And God says, Will you do the same with me? It's okay if you do. You don't live long enough to be more than a toddler on this earth, let's be honest. Dad, I need you. He also points out that the past obstacles and old enemies God will remove or destroy when we call out and listen to his voice. He mentions Egypt and Assyria, right? Egypt was the superpower for centuries. Then the Assyrian Empire rose up and was the superpower. And I'm sure at this time they're saying... They're in control. They're always going to be in control. We're stuck under their thumb for the rest of their life. Well, what's Egypt today but a bunch of dust and ruins? What's the Assyrian Empire now? Our past enemies, our past hurdles, God will decimate. He says, by my power, I will make my people strong. And by my authority, they will go wherever they wish. I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, elevate our perspective. When we're in his arms and we're nuzzled under his chin and we can hear his heartbeat and his breath upon our face, we can do anything by my power, by my authority. We can be mighty warriors. Remember, again, going back to Genesis as we close out this service, everything we can see and know and the stuff that we're still discovering in the stars he breathed into existence. He spoke into existence in six days. Do you think when he says, I have spoken, that he means it? Amen. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be beautifully dependent upon you. That we would remember that we can call out to you at any moment, any time, and, you, and ask and you'll meet us right where we are. Lord, I pray for that beautiful dependence. 
None of us want to feel weak or appear weak. And that fear creeps in our heart and we hide away from you because of our shame. When the truth of the matter is, we can't hide from you. And that our fear leads us to the very destruction that we're afraid of. But if we would just come to you and call out to you, you would pick us up and hold us and make us into whoever we were called to be in the first place. And so Lord, let us claim the truth of Zechariah chapter 10 for us today. In your name we pray. Amen.